Hey listeners, we're starting something new and exciting. If you've been enjoying our show, be sure to sign up for our new monthly newsletter. Visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com to sign up for our newsletter today. Thanks for listening. Listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. Uh, This week's guest on the show is Kevin Kautzman. Kevin is a playwright originally from North Dakota, living in Minneapolis, whose work has been performed around the UK and US. Uh, Kevin first studied playwriting at the Royal Court Theatre in London and has been a fellow at the Playwright Center and the Michener Center for Writers, where he completed his MFA in playwriting and screenwriting. He is the co-founder of Cut Edge Collective, an experimental playwriting group, and can be found at kevinkautzman.com. Kevin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Fantastic. Yeah. What a great intro. <laughs> thanks so much, sir. <laughs> We're very, very excited to talk to you. Oh, yes, and likewise. Um, so we like to start off the show asking our guests, you know, what is your earliest memory? Tell us your earliest memory. What was your life like before theater? My earliest memory mm-hmm. of all, well, I have a memory of the first portmanteau that I ever encountered as a, as a little child in, <laughs> in Bismarck, North Dakota. There was a morning when everyone was very excited about something called brunch. And <laughs> when it dawned on me, and I realized this is very bourgeois. We're not, we weren't that bougie. It was, it was very, uh, I mean, my parents were school teachers, uh, my father was a salesman. Uh, my mother, my mother was a school teacher, and it's a long story. In in any case, uh, I just could not believe that there that we were able to smash another meal into the morning and make a <laughs> word that indicated all these special rules, right? So I just got so excited about brunch, and I think it was just you know eggs, <laughs> nothing, nothing special, scrambled eggs. But I just could not believe that such a thing existed and it really cracked my little brain open. I've always had a weird relationship with words and, and I think it goes back to my discovery of, of brunch. So it sounds like you were more excited about the word than the food itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as the food came along, yes. Uh, this, was not, this was North Dakota in the eighties. Uh, we were, we were, it was not gourmand uh, cuisine here. Right. I mean, I'm pretty sure it must've been something through a church or a, or a civic organization or whatnot, you know, where it's like, you know, scrambled eggs, like you would get at a, um, at a holiday inn or whatever. But uh, yeah, no, the word, the, I just, it was so interesting to me because I think I was just delighted by the fact that you could invent this new, it seemed like a completely new invention. And I think mm. at a very mm. early age, I realized, wow, we really do create reality uh, with our, with our language, with our words. And Right, because brunch has all its special rules, doesn't it? It's it, is it okay to day drink? Apparently, apparently, mom thinks it is. How old are you? <laughs> At brunch, I, I must have been. I must have been three or four years old, four or four years old, or something. Uh, mm. I'll just that is a very early memory that I have. 
I love it because kids that age, I think, are so obsessed with rules and like mm. following the rules. And so when they see those rules being broken, it, it can be very mind blowing. <laughs> you can have well, lunch I, food and breakfast food at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And booze. And booze. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it's, and people who've followed me for, for any amount of time through the podcast that I do get this podcast.com. And then others know that I do have this, this prevailing theory that Western civilization, uh, exists really to protect brunch. Uh, this is, we will know we're back when we can have brunch again. and it really unites people. It really does. I realize again, it's, it's maybe sounds bougie, but it's, it's an important thing. Just that, that leisurely, Saturday afternoon or, or Sunday early afternoon. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. So I'm really hoping we get brunch back in, in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, could you talk to us a bit about your theater? So from uh, learning about brunch mm -hmm. to what, what, how did you get into theater? Uh, I was a bit of a weird kid, uh, which tends mm -hmm. to, to be true of theater people, uh, not exclusively, but but more often than not, I would say. And, uh, you know, so I in high school, uh, I did a little bit of stagehand work. I kind of hung around the theater, uh, enjoyed that and but never really pursued it. And I was dabbling in writing prose and I wrote some, uh, you know, some some terrible prose. Uh, and then and then it slowly dawned on me through university uh, that I really enjoyed writing dialogue. And I, and, I, and I was also sort of lonely writing these these terrible novels, uh, these juvenilia, right? And I, I put two and two together and said, well, maybe I maybe I want to be in the theater. And so it was after uh, university here in Minnesota uh, that I, I said, you know, I'm going to go and do these things that I regret not doing. I realized I'm not even not even 25. What am I doing living with regrets? It's absurd. I should go and do these things. <laughs> I mean, what, what a crazy thing, it's right? because you're an artist. Right, right. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure I had regrets at the age of eight. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, it is a little bit maudlin, isn't it? It's a little over the top to be in your 20s and to think, oh, God, I wish I had done this. It's like, what, what sort of brainwashing has convinced you that life <laughs> is over uh, just because you've left university? So I, I went into a community acting class in North Minneapolis and and uh, took, took to that and ended up joining the company. We did a little Neil Simon play. Uh, and it was just, I didn't look back from there. I, I started writing plays and then uh, through, through a work thing, you know, we had the opportunity to go to, uh, go to England, uh, spent a year in England, did a lot of uh, new writing work over there. The Royal Court was amazing. Soho Theater, amazing. I was in a, a play uh, Camus wrote uh, called Caligula. Mm. Everyone knows that. And of course, everybody immediately thinks of the the soft core sort of pornographic 80s movie, right? But it's, it's a little different from that. It was staged. We staged that in the context of the Iraq war. Uh, and uh, it's a very good play. So I was in that and uh, yeah, just kept writing plays. And I, I think it's such a wonderful way to, uh, to express yourself. Uh, plays are kind of lovely. Uh, you don't so, have to. Yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you don't have to cloister yourself away for three years to work on a play the same way that you have, you would have to do um, on a novel. I admire my novelist friends, the novelists I know. I, I think it's a, I think it's an incredible thing that they can achieve. I'm just maybe a little too extroverted. I wanna I wanna get done with a draft in in three or four weeks and then work with people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm curious about is when you started writing plays and and were first getting into it, what kinds of stories were you telling? What were you excited to oh, portray 
Yeah, I'm re- I'm remembering the very first play where I knocked on any doors and heard an answer back was a play that was a it was a 10 minute play. And I would encourage any new playwright to start with 10 minute plays the same way you would encourage somebody who has the idea they're going to write the great American novel to maybe start with a short story first. Right. Uh, because so much of this in anything, in any art sort of won or lost on what you choose your subject to be. And if you if you pick a subject and then write an entire novel about it, maybe maybe it's better to start start small. Um, now, you know, of course, if you have a great idea, I'm not going to discourage anybody from doing it. In any event, I wrote a 10-minute a, a play about, I think it was actually about a sniper. I've mm. been very interested in trauma uh, and in war. And uh, I was... Uh, I'm I'm 38 now, so I came of age right around uh, the turn of the. I'm, a, I'm an early millennial, is how I identify. Or, in fact, there was one chart that um, had a four or five year period between um, Gen X and the millennials that they called it the um, the Oregon Trail generation. So I <laughs> played the Oregon so Trail, and I'm a millennial. <laughs> you're entitled to you can you can enjoy that uh, but i think it's really my little generation my little four year in any event i think they said it was 1978 to 1982 or 83 was the oregon trail generation um but that you know i wrote a play about uh, about a sniper and uh it, you know it was sort of strange and do i have immediate experience with that no but uh it was something that i felt sort of passionate about i've been um we've been watching this country uh do what it does for a long time um, and I, I think we have to, anybody who's behaving surprised at sort of how, how, how sharply the wheels have come off, um, you know, hasn't been paying attention for very long. The, the first play that did anything for me was a play called Then Waves. And it was something that I wrote after I came back from the UK and it started as a, a 10 minute play. Uh, and then I evolved it into a, a feature play. And it was about a, it was about a soldier who, who had come back from Iraq with, uh, with PTSD and then mm. he, uh, ends up doing, doing violence against his, uh, his son. So pretty heavy, you know, it, I mean, you, you wouldn't think, oh, Kevin writes dark comedies or comedies, but I really have drifted a little more. I've mellowed out a little with age. Uh, <laughs> but that was, that was the first full length play that, that did anything for me. And I got into the, I got into the playwright center on that with the Jerome fellowship. And that was a pretty big deal. Pretty cool. Cool. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so I want to talk about your play moderation. Uh, it's a, it's a play that you wrote adapted and then you adapted it for, um, a podcast or for audio. Um, but I would love to play this clip, a sample of this, and then we could get into talking about it. Great. Moderation by Kevin Kautzman. Scene, a content moderation center run by the contractor on behalf of the company's ubiquitous social media platform. Act one, seven plus. Morning, they are at their computer terminals. A westward facing window allows sunlight, faint at this early hour. I am being a social media content moderator. He is being my manager. She is being my first direct report, technically my second. The first one had issues. I am attempting to forget about that loser. I am forgetting. I am looking at a video of Bigfoot. I'm wondering why it was flagged. There's a male voice speaking, poorly recorded, but audible. Now I'm understanding. The voice is claiming Bigfoot is a descendant of what the voice is calling undesirable races. 
And I'm snickering at how stupid this is, despite myself. Cool. Um, yeah, so I, I, I always love, like, listening or, like, reading, like, the first few mm. of the lines, like, setting it up. And then so um, could you talk to us a little bit about uh, what's it about and what inspired you to write this play? Sure. Uh, I think it would be good to give a little context to that clip. Yeah. That was a reading, a Zoom reading that was done by a theater company called Spooky Action Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, that was Amanda Forstrom, Robert Bowen Smith, and Liz Devine reading stage directions. And the Zoom reading was um, really, really well done. And I know these things are uh, a little controversial. People are having a lot of playwrights have a lot of feelings about these Zoom readings. I got a lot out of that. The play lends itself to it because it is these two social media content moderators uh, at work in in front of their computers. Um, you know, and so what you heard there was a recording of the Zoom reading, which can still be found, but I worked with a producer, this fellow I met on Twitter named Jeff Giese, who is this uh, extraordinarily energetic guy, very passionate about moderation. When I sent it to him, he really uh, got energized by it. And I hope every playwright finds a producer like that at some point in their career, uh, because it really can put a fire under you. And uh, he said, let's let's take this hacker mentality. He and I both have a bit of a tech background, right? I run a, an agency, build websites is how I pay the bills um, until until I become, you know, in, incredibly famous as a playwright. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, we said, let's 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 take a hacker mentality and get something out as soon as we could can. So we said we went to Spooky Action. We said, hey, uh, we want to take the audio from this Zoom reading and adapt it into a podcast. And you can hear it, the entire thing at moderationplay.com. Uh, and that's what you were hearing just then. Uh, this is a play that I've wanted to write for a number of years. I finally sat down to do it in the summer of 2019 because uh, the news was kind of catching up to the story. I had heard about it years mm. ago. I kind of knew it was happening. Uh, and I knew I was, as a playwright, uniquely positioned to write about it in that, again, I have this kind of tech background. I, I kind of mm. grew up on the internet partly. Theater, in fact, is a way for me to sort of combat the... Um, the intensity of the internet in terms of like the internet is such a simul it's a simulacrum it's not real life right so one of the things i love about theater is that it's kind of this lever that forces you back into your body it forces you to put your phone away it forces you to think in a, probably about the oldest fashion you can in terms of what humanity is and and then what we are really it's you're finally in the theater going in the theater that i love you're going back to sit around a campfire with other people now you you elevate it to the the form of art but it's still this absolutely primal uh, ancient thing and uh in in any case these these social media content moderators are employed by contractors who are then contracted to companies like Facebook. I assume some of the companies have in-house content moderators. It's this new frontier. Um, but one of Facebook's sort of nonsense uh, uh, lies about itself, right, is that the average salary is you know two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, it's because they they have contractors to handle this dirty work of of going through right. all of the things that are reported. So I just thought. When I, when I heard this, I read the, an article, and there's some very good articles um, out there if you look up, you know, I think it's The Verge, or if you just do a search for social media content moderators, PTSD, yeah. you will see that Facebook just this year, after I wrote the play, uh, just this year settled to the tune of $52 million with some of its, its um, down 
downstream content moderators over PTSD at work. So to me, this just, it just screamed, wow, this needs to be made into a play. And uh, so I worked on it last summer and uh, just haven't looked back. It's one of those plays that's really caught a spark and different people are into it. Um, I'm in talks right now with a theater company in Manhattan called Up Theater. They're they're in upstate Manhattan, as we like to call it, um, <laughs> Washington Heights and, and Inwood, which is where I, I lived for five years. Um, we just moved, moved back this year uh, after after COVID and everything or through COVID. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, that's the long and short of it. It's, I think it's a very exciting subject. And uh, so it's a story that has to be told. What do you think is going to be the future of content moderation? Well, I think what's happening is that these people are building the AI to replace themselves. So I think mm. there's sort of poignant irony there. Uh, these companies don't want humans very much. Uh, and they're very open about it. Um, not just the companies, but these big uh, HR-oriented uh, global institutes are are really talking about how to put us all out of out of meaningful work. And uh, my friend, my friend Deborah Yarchin, who went to Iowa, I, I believe, yeah, former yeah. guest, oh, yeah. Beckett's mm-hmm. Babies. Yeah, shout out to Deborah. Uh, and uh, you know, she wrote a, a fine play about truckers being being yeah. put out of work, and that's coming. That's that's not a. It's not speculative and uh, we're not even really being allowed to ask what that's going to do to our society. We're, Mm -hmm. we're so on, we're just constantly kept on our back foot by partisan politics and America has this ugly class blindness. And uh, I just feel like we're, we're heading towards something really, uh, well, I don't want to (laughs) be doom and gloom. I think the, I think the, uh, (laughs) the future of content moderation is more, is more automation. And that, that comes out through the play, right? So these characters have the unfortunate job of as they're, as they're working, they're building the intelligence that will ultimately replace them. Yeah. And that, that is not a, that is not a fun position. That's a dead end job, quite literally. If you're good at your job, you're helping the the machine uh, eventually uh, put you out of work. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. Um, you know, I think there will always be people. There will always be somebody kind of uh, pulling the levers uh, at these at these companies. You're going to need somebody to finally, uh, you know, audit what's happening. Um, I think I, it's going to be an interesting time. I don't know. Do we, 20 years from now, do we look back on this time, you know, in this interview, and do we look back at it like people would look back at uh, social media the way that you might look back on tobacco? Big tobacco. Are we gonna Are we gonna realize that the mental health consequences of this social media mm-hmm. are are on par with the the sort of carcinogenic qualities of uh, of big tobacco? Especially since they, they're definitely luring kids. Uh, the whole the whole there's somebody right now. There are a lot of PhDs right now sitting around, you know, backed by big capital, thinking about how to get the next generation of kids hooked onto some social network we haven't even heard of yet. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Mm. Uh, I'm just like, well, yep, Terminator, it's here. The Terminator is here. I should say, too, I feel like, uh, you know, maybe it's because the sky is so gray here in St. Paul right now, but I feel Mm -hmm. the play is humorous, too. I have to say it is a dark comedy. There's a lot of humor in the play. It's not a laugh a minute comedy, right? It's not Weekend Mm -hmm. at Bernie's, but I do, I think, leaven it with some some dark humor, uh, which if, if Mm -hmm. if it didn't have that, I think it would be unbearable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first minute uh, that you sent us, I mean, um, this, I was mentioning how it was like the way it was setting, like that last moment of like the Bigfoot, like something the mention of yeah. the Bigfoot, which is like a, a funny, a funny image and like a funny, um, like a clash of like 
the of what you are setting up and then you bring this in like this element of kind of a surprise um so already i kind of have a sense of like oh maybe this is like tonally there's going to be some humor here um while exploring what you just said this like social media this content moderation um yeah if i may you just reminded me of the thing that i omitted which is the this is the sort of impetus the moment I said I have to write this play is when I read one of these articles and they claimed that some of the social media content moderators had begun to adopt the conspiracy theories they were mm. encountering. And I said, that's right, a play right, right wow. there. Now we're, <laughs> we've got all these people working in, I assume, pretty crummy conditions in Arizona and California, making mm-hmm. barely uh, above minimum wage. And now they're, they're thinking about World Trade Center 7. Well, even journalists say that, you know, if they are trying to do a deep report on conspiracy theorists and kind of the underbelly of the internet, they, it becomes like mind bending for them to spend so many hours a day reading these posts and, um, Kind of seeing all the horrific ideas people are positing mm-hmm. and it and they you know it it's kind of um it's difficult to really explain the mindset without falling into it a little bit i think yes and i certainly spent a lot of time researching this play i had an alt account on twitter twitter's still angry at me uh i went I, I actually went very deep uh, in order to to pull this play out, and I'm I'm pretty pleased with the results uh, in that. So, for example, Jeff uh, Giese, the producer of the of the podcast, is very well connected in Silicon Valley and has a has a background here, um, and he knows quite a few people. Uh, he he's uh, he's one of the people who has wrote early about the concept of meme warfare, memetic mm-hmm. warfare. So I got the hands into the the right person. This is somebody who appreciates what I was trying to do with the play, uh, and you know we we've, we've had the play circulated among people who are pretty hardcore troll types, and they go, "Who is this guy? He clearly did his research." So I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not easy, yeah. and it certainly wasn't fun. Uh, yeah. I felt like after it was all over, I kind of needed to take a long shower. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is reminding me after, you know, when we finally settle down here this year, I, I'm probably going to give myself maybe a week, a week detox off, mm-hmm. off all social media and maybe try to yeah. go walk in the woods or something. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know about journalists per se. Um, you know, I haven't heard those stories, but, but definitely trying to imagine what it must be like eight hours a day to have to field the very worst stuff that, that comes yeah. across the transom to me is just just awful. And of course they're not being paid handsomely for this. They're not getting, uh, they're not getting stock in Facebook or, you know, or, or, uh, alphabet or whatnot, um, to do this kind of dirty work. The other fun thing about the play is that it, and I only realized this after the fact, um, it, it operates kind of like Pinter, like the dumb waiter where mm-hmm. there's something new is shoved into their faces every, every so often. And it, it informs the scene. Right, right, yeah. right. Because they're just reacting to like the next horrible thing <laughs> that comes up. Pretty much. Yeah. Right. So you talked a little bit about moving due to COVID. I'm wondering um, more broadly, how has the pandemic affected the way you think about theater and oh. um, the role that 
theater artists play in the current moment? <sighs> I think that I'm, I'm happy that I have a play that is having a life through this time. Mm-hmm. It makes me think that as uh, theater artists, we do need to be nimble. Uh, mm-hmm. If I were to go back and, and if I had not written moderation, I think this year I would have focused on writing something that could be done by Zoom uh, mm-hmm. or as a podcast. I think every playwright right now owes it to themselves to a point to, to make that play, write that play. Because as we've seen, we don't know uh, how long this, this will go. And, and it could happen again in five years. And you may be thankful that you have that story that, that is in your pocket ready to go. So I'm fortunate that I had a play that kind of converts to this. I, I'm trying to be optimistic because I think when we come back, I think the hunger is going to be extreme. Mm, and I yeah. love dirty little poor theater. I love rough <laughs> theater. I love, uh, you know, like red eye theater here in Minneapolis. Uh, I love the black box. I love the two people on stage with a chair and we were putting on a show. I, mm-hmm. I just love that. And as long as there's a will to make plays like that, and there's room for, of course, the big spectacles too. I, I, it, it's, it's totally fine, but I'm just such a fan of the well-written um, straight play that mm-hmm. is muscular and leaves people questioning and uh, you know, makes you want to see five different productions of, of it over 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, each one kind of speaking to a different uh, time and you know the actors of course bring all their own energy to the play i really believe moderation has enough uh slack in it to allow different actors and different companies to bring a lot of uh different views to it there's enough ambivalence in the play that i'm, I'm excited for the future life of it um again but but theater is the place where we put we we still turn our phones off at the theater and it is this secular um humanistic church. Uh, I mean, in the best way, right? We don't go there to hear preaching, but we go there to examine our humanity. And that as long as we're human, that will have a place. And I think all of this backed up energy from pandemic, from being locked in, from the the civic discord, all of it, I think theater will have a place when we come back. Uh, I am afraid, of course, people will be extremely risk averse when we come back. And I feel like, especially in the United States, new plays may suffer. Uh, But that remains to be seen. And we're- You mean like financially risk averse or like ideologically risk averse? Both. Or like risk averse, not wanting to go sit in a theater. (laughs) That's also going to be an issue. Yes. uh, For a while. All of the above. All of the above. Yeah. Um, but I, again, we're, we are, we are the theater artists, so we do get to decide what it's going to look like. And I think one thing we've got to be wary of is waiting for someone else to give us permission, uh, waiting for the, that producer to come along. Uh, I know I've been guilty of it throughout my career, but I just, I just think if we're passionate about theater, if we really believe in the mission of it, 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 it falls to us to, to not, not let it, uh, become, like a museum, right? It needs to be living. It needs to be alive. It needs to be current. It needs to be um, agile, collaborative, all of those things that if you're like I am, got you into the theater in the first place. It's just waiting. And it, again, it's I, one of the things I write in my, of course, you know, as playwrights, we, we all know this, uh, you know, you have to constantly write an artistic statement. 
It always seems like, you know, in addition to the, you know, the blood of your firstborn, when you're making an application, they want, they want an artistic <laughs> and a resume and a play, you know, and the play has to look like this. Fine. Um, you know, it I'm would be ready. easier just to send the blood of your firstborn, I think. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, right. With, with, uh, with 10, 10 uh, ballots, <laughs> blood streaked ballots. Um, no. So the, uh, right. But I really, when I write those, those artistic statements, I really fundamentally believe that our humanity is woven into our ability to make theater. And our ability to reflect our reality back to ourselves in community, in collaboration, uh, together in a way that is on a, a human scale, right? 50 people in the audience, you know, eight theater artists, and we put a play on. There's yeah. just something um, I sublime about that. And uh, I don't think it's optional either. I think that uh, for us to be human, we, that, that, has to be a feature of the social order. So in that sense, I'm optimistic about this. Again, I feel like there's energy being gathered right now. And when we come back, uh, people are going to be looking to the theater to restore a sense of normalcy and humanity. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I mean, during this time, one thing I've realized is that, uh, you know, technology is here to stay, (laughs) you know, it's going to be here, uh, even after COVID or if, if there is any, like whatever normalcy is going to be in the next year or two years that it might change, but uh, technology is here. And then I just think that um, it could be that like zoom plays or zoom readings, uh, maybe it won't really go away. Like it might be something. Cause I think one of the things that people like about it is being able to connect with other artists from other parts of the country. Yeah. And working with them, like having that collaboration. So I feel like there's something there that I, it, that it will still be um, around. But yeah, I, I, I love what you said about like the, the poor theater, like that dark box. Like I just like, I, I before COVID I was doing sketch comedy and so like I just miss like all like you know 50 sketch comedians in the backstage all cramped together (laughs) waiting to do a three-minute sketch you know like we're all cramped like I miss it's gross and (laughs) disgusting but I miss it um so I'm like looking forward I don't know when that day is gonna come uh but I look forward to that day (laughs) yeah I, I like the point you just made about Zoom being here to stay and I think we should not think of these things as mutually exclusive. Mm. Uh, One issue the American theater has is that it's so provincial and you have to be in New York City, right? You have to be in New York City or you have to be in Chicago or you have to be in Minneapolis, but, you know, to make your career, et cetera. I think that uh, there's an opportunity here to think differently about where, and we may have to, because uh, Mm -hmm. I think this year has shown that, uh, you know, these cities are maybe not as sustainable for everyone as we would like, but that artistic sensibility, that artistic need isn't going anywhere. So for example, one idea we have with uh, Cut Edge Collective, which is the experimental uh, theater theater writers group that I, that I uh, co-founded with Tom Block, uh, it, it was funny because it actually worked a little bit in my favor in that the group was meeting in Manhattan. If COVID hadn't happened, you know, we were coming back anyway to, to start our family. Uh, if COVID hadn't happened, I would have very quickly lost touch with that group because they were going to continue to meet in Manhattan. And okay, now I'm excluded from that. The plan had been 
uh, for me to come back to the Twin Cities, start a, a sibling group mm. out here. And I, I have this idea, and this is something I think we're going to do in the coming years, where we'll have cut edge in Manhattan, we'll have cut edge in Minneapolis, and we'll do a, or in the Twin Cities, and we'll do a dramaturgical exchange between the two groups. So each group will have uh, six to eight writers, and then each writer will be paired with someone in the other locale uh, to support to support one another, and uh, you know to give dramaturgical feedback on on uh, cool. the play. And I think that has I think that has huge potential. Uh, and if if this COVID pandemic hadn't happened, I don't know if that would have been something I had thought of. Uh, and I, and I feel like we've got to really start thinking that way um, in the long term. It's not to say we can't we 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 want to focus entirely on it because I I for one am, am completely sick of screens. Uh, right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think there are opportunities. Mm -hmm. Totally. Okay. So this is a fun question that, uh, we started asking our guests. Um, so name three playwrights living or dead that you would invite to a dinner party. <laughs> oh boy. Wow. Three playwrights <laughs> living or dead who I would invite to a dinner party. Well, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go with my heart. I would love to meet Peter Schaefer. Mm, uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> what? That's such a funny choice. Is it? Mm -hmm. I would just love to meet him and talk about Equus. Uh, I just yeah. think that's such a, Equus and Amadeus. Give me, in my career, give me one play as, uh, as powerful um, as that. I, I think, read Equus in high school and I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, there's a very, a very fine film version. I uh, did not know. Oh no, I think I did know that. I feel like we watched some of it. For some reason, that completely uh, is off the radar. I don't know if it has to do with who owns the rights or the distribution. Find that and watch that. I, I encourage you. I really think it's wonderful. I mean... Um, yeah, give me one play as as powerful as Amadeus or or Equus. Um, I think Beckett. Uh, it's I'm sure it's a cliche, right? But that would be. I mean, I'm on. Beckett I, honestly, I don't know if anybody else has said Beckett. Have they? Started? Yeah. No, I don't think so. A Beckett. Good job. <laughs> I really mean. Right? I mean, it's so obvious. Uh, this is this is very very hard to do because my mind now is lighting up with uh, with playwrights. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna cheat and get four in, and I'm gonna say Carol Churchill Chekhov. <laughs> nice! Oh my gosh, what a fun dinner party! Yeah, it'd just be amazing. Yeah. I think it would just be so interesting. Good choices. Uh, yeah. So far, I feel like I gotta say, I think Carol Churchill is like leading in. She's our most invited guest. <laughs> yeah, she's our most invited guest. Yeah, be very busy going to all these <laughs> dinner parties. I think she'd be able to hack it. Uh, she has a play that I, that has haunted me. I've never seen it, but it is available as a PDF, and it's a it's a short play. Uh, it's one of the plays we looked at when I was at the Royal Court in the Young Writers Program, uh, which was transformative um, for me. And uh, it's called Far Away. Are you familiar oh, with yes. that play? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we Amazing. read it in. Um, we read it at Iowa. Yeah, that play. It just it has such a. Such a quality. She's yeah. she's such a great writer. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, that's fun. I like that question. I could do that all day, and I'm still I'm still going down the, the list in my mind. You know. Tell us about why Chekhov. Why Chekhov? I think that 
one thing we struggle with is this idea that we have to be one thing. And mm. somehow if you identify as a playwright, but you aren't <laughs> either on a trust fund or, you know, you stand to inherit a bunch of family money and you have to do other things that somehow you're a failure. Mm. Uh, and I think that's completely um, uh, wrong. I think that's, that's not what a playwright is or should be. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's how you get you, that's how you get plays written for other theater people. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Chekhov was famously a doctor uh, and he, he also uh, wrote short stories and transformed that, that discipline of, of, mm -hmm. of creative writing. And I just think, again, you know, uh, the, the seagull, I mean, forget about it. It, it really doesn't get any <laughs> better than that. And um, I think he would have a lot to say right now about our situation in the United States as well. Mm -hmm. The time oh, that he yeah. lived in. Um, I mean, the cherry orchard is as relevant today as, as when it was written. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Wow. I also think, yeah, it'd be interesting to, I, I, I don't, did he, did he speak English? I don't know that he did. Probably not. I don't, probably I don't spoke think French, so. probably French and, um, and, uh, Russian. Well, in any case, yeah, that, that, that would be a really, he'd be just be so interesting. You have the impression he that he- and Beckett could speak to each other. And then <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like they would have like a long exchange and then you'd be like, what did you say? And then you'd get like a one phrase response <laughs> from Beckett. Yeah, right, right. I, w I really wonder what they would make of Americans too. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Um, I think Thornton Wilder would be interesting too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Fun. I, you know, Our Town, I, th I feel like there's a, there's a pretty cool production of Our Town waiting to be had in, in the context of COVID. Uh, oh, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm going way past that question. That's okay. That's <laughs> okay. That's good. That's um, good. But here's another question. Okay. Right. <laughs> so um, if you were an audience member or a reader who read your play for the, or saw your play for the first time, you know, how might they describe you in one word? Dark. <laughs> I, okay. I, I, I think, yeah, I think dark. Yeah. Intense, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. My plays are can be pretty divisive as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I heard recently from someone, uh, uh, well, yeah, my plays can be pretty divisive. There's, there's definitely a, a, you know, you're, you love it or you hate it kind of a thing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to that point where it's just edge on the edge enough that it's dangerous, like really dangerous in some way. So I make some choices that people kind of will sometimes look at and go, what are, you, what are you doing there? I'm like, well, I got your attention, didn't I? And um, what is it that makes you, that appeals to you about bringing people to the edge of that danger? Oh, I, well, I think, I think theater is one of the few places where we can do it publicly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think that Hollywood, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, is averse to it. Um, I'm sure, you know, not always. There's some, there's some really interesting independent cinema that really goes there. Uh, but in terms of my life and my writing and my background, I can, I can sit down for six weeks and uh, produce a script that is then in the hands of actors a few weeks later. And we're, we're telling something and there's no, I don't need a production company. I don't need a million dollar budget. Uh, we're talking about it now. So I, mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's the immediacy of it is, is interesting. And I think but that I, I'm wondering why is that, why is it valuable to like what's the value in creating work that is on right. that edge of danger and divisiveness yeah i think actually theater trains us 
<laughs> theater prepares us for life. Mm. And I think that I'm reminded of whatever you think of, of Bukowski. Um, there's the great Bukowski documentary about him. And he was talking about, I think in the documentary, he talks about Freud. And the one thing that Freud could not have predicted was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> we're going to, oh we're going to. We're going to make everything nice. Everything's going to be safe and clean and nice. And, you know, you're never going to have to think about death. You're never going to have to think about, you know, the ugliness of uh, the ugly side of life. That 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 creates emotional cripples. That creates uh, uh, people who are permanently stunted in childhood. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that our society uh, needs to be periodically rattled out of that. And I would rather that happen in and around the theater than in the streets of the nation's capital, for example. Mm -hmm. I really think there's a there's a civic service that the that the theater does uh, when it's when there's an intensity to it. I think about uh, right Sarah Kane. You have this. It's almost like theater is kind of a bloodletting. Should be a kind of bloodletting at times. I mean, I know it sounds intense, right? But I think about Artaud and his his philosophy mm -hmm. of the theater. I'm very much yeah. of of that mind. Yeah. I think it does. I think it, it's. Uh, I think it's necessary. I think it's essential. And it's. It. it re I, there have been nights in the theater where I have, uh, not grown up fully, but I have been nudged toward a a more adult understanding of the real of the reality of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why people pay to go to go. Partly, <laughs> not always. That's, that's not why they pay to go see The Lion King on Broadway. <laughs> However. <laughs> no. Right. I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time. But yes, I completely agree. Well, <laughs> the Lion King has the, the Lion King is wonderful. Uh, the, the Lion, the Lion I King loved is, it. I love it. Not, it's, I, it's not. <laughs> it's a different kind of. Um, yeah, it's you know it's it, it, this art form is like music, right? So I could put on uh, an album by you know uh, some hardcore metal band, right? Mastodon. And it's music, or we can put on um, some Arvo Pert or some some Bach, and it's also music. Do you know? So right. there's a wide range Absolutely. in this practice, and uh, nothing nothing is like objectively superior to anything else. I, I I think there's room for like just a good lighthearted comedy <laughs> that takes you away for an evening. I think that's great too. Um, gets you out of the home, gets you gets you in your community. That has a place too. I'm not I'm not judging um, you know any of that at all. Um, I feel like I'm a playwright because I'm tone deaf, and if I could, if I could be a musician, I would be that. Um, I'm absolutely nuts right now. There's this band called Uva Ulver. They're a Norwegian band, and they have a new album. I'm just crazy. It's called Flowers of Evil, and it's this very cerebral, intellectual, but it sounds kind of like Depeche Mode. But every lyric is a reference to something literary. Yeah, if I could, if I could be over there making music, I would be doing that. But. Um, I'm stuck in the theater because I can't I can't hit a note. <laughs> <laughs> and because you love language and your first memories of the word brunch. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So okay, one more question before I move to glistens. Um, what advice would you give to uh, young playwrights who are interested in thinking outside the box, who want to try to make work in this time? Mm. What would you tell them? I did Adam Simkowitz's uh, interview blog here for mm -hmm. the first time for moderation, and I answered some of these questions there. Uh, I'm, but I it wasn't specifically about this time. Uh, mm -hmm. So 
for a young playwright writing now, I would say don't wait for anyone to give you permission to do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the means of production are really in our hands. You have a laptop. You have you can get a microphone. Um, I think about the the great comedian Tim Dillon, who's who's working now. He's just hilarious, just absolutely crushing it and having his moment. And one of his things is he talks about this like you can't you don't have any excuses anymore. The audience is out there. Uh, if you're not finding them, that's that's because you're not you're not doing the work. So um, I would say right now, write a Zoom play. Uh, I would say don't obsess too much over graduate school or getting into graduate school. It's great if you do. It's great if you can. Uh, uh, don't do not take out student loans if you can avoid them uh, by any yeah. means. Yeah, I just let's underline that piece of advice. Yeah, so true. Do not take out student loans. There are programs that will will pay you to go. Uh, now, of course, if you have, if you're if you have a trust fund or you're going to inherit a bunch of money, more power to you. Uh, you know, in that case, fine, do it. But boy, you've got to be buyer beware at this point. If you're if you're taking out big student loans, uh, you, you're you know, you've had your head in the sand and, and uh, you know, nobody's going to have that much pity for you. So I would say graduate school is not a golden ticket. Uh, it can seem that way when you're on the outside. Um, it's certainly not. It's important. It can be great. It can be, I had an incredible experience, a lot of growing experience. Um, but there's an opportunity cost, too, that comes with taking two or three years out of, out of you know, sort of mainstream life. Um, and, I, and I would just say, finally, because I could go on for half an hour about this, I would just say, um, get into your community act, take an acting lesson. You, you can't, I don't think you can write an orchestra if you don't, or write a, um, an opera if you can't play music, right? Mm. You have to act, even if it's just reading your friend's plays, even if it's just getting together and doing a little community theater thing, you don't have to do it forever. I, I put acting aside, for example, cause I have children and I've gotten busy and I have, you know, I've run a business and all the rest. So I can't, it's, it's a very, well, you're young, definitely do that. Get the, get plays into your body, get plays into your, your mouth, the language. You'll know pretty quickly if something is fun to do. And if you can't write a play that actors want to do, you're, you're not going to go anywhere as a playwright. Mm -hmm. There you go. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. That's a great advice. Uh, For the longest time, I just like, like, oh, please don't put me in your reading. I don't want to read. Please don't do this. But I remember that. I just like, I hated it. I hated it. <laughs> but uh, now I just like, you know, if it's the offers there, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. I want to, I'll read. I'll read. I'll read. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Kevin. Thank you um, for having me. I hope I haven't, haven't held forth too much. Uh, again, I, <laughs> I do my own podcast and I kind of enjoy when people come on and really just make it just, I, you know, I want a guest to be talkative. So I hope that's, I hope it's all. Yeah, right. definitely. Awesome. Uh, all right. So Glisten. So this is the part of the show where we just share kind of highlights of the week. It could be headline or something that struck you um, on your walk or whatever. Um, so I'll start. This week I binged watched Queen's Gambit on Netflix uh, it's such a fun, uh, show. Like I, I could not believe how the show made chess so exciting. <laughs> and you know, what, you know what was so remarkable is that just, you know, a lot of it is the main character like playing, you know? And so there's so little is said, but you see the intensity and like the, the, like her thinking, like you could just see the, the, the drama of it all just, you know, 
um, with so little being said. So I thought that was really fun. Are you going to start playing chess? I I thought about it. I kept I was like looking up chess. Games. <laughs> like, how do I learn? I know the knight is like the little L thing. Like you move like a big move L. Um, but yeah, um, I may have uh, started my chess club in high school. Amazing. High school. Yeah, I played chess. <laughs> I gave up chess at one point. Uh, I had a job once where I was teaching chess to like seven year olds, and I mean. I was really the, yeah they were playing each other and I would walk around the room and like I would see a board that had no kings on it <laughs> they'd be like what happened and they were like oh we just captured each other's kings you know and they're just still playing I was like okay <laughs> I was just glad when they weren't throwing the pieces all over the room yeah <laughs> do you know who was obsessed with chess uh Stanley Kubrick really uh, oh, yes yeah yeah and uh, very famously, and I think that makes sense when you sort of look at his work. Mm. I mean, one of the things that I was so shocked about, like I didn't know in chess world, is like there's all these like strategies that people memorize, mm. and then and they, and they're like, if and they, I guess it's the way they record every move, and then so you like it's kept in file or something. So mm-hmm. everyone called yeah. they name certain strategies. I was like, what? I didn't. There's probably like hundreds and thousands of strategies out there that you just. I don't know. And the people. Yeah. All the sequences. The sequences. Right. Yeah. I was like, what the heck? Um, Yeah. It's like music. Yeah. Like music. That's a good way to describe it. I, everything is like music. That is, um, if you want to look up a fun game to watch, look up, uh, Bobby Fisher. It's called the game of the century. Oh yeah. He was Mm -hmm. 14 and he was playing a grandmaster and he makes this incredible, even if you don't understand Uh chess, he makes this incredible queen sacrifice. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was yeah. real famous for that. Actually, that's so funny. So th- the main character on this show is a woman. And then I guess um, the, it's based on a book. And I think it is um, based on this guy, Bobby Fischer. And so, <laughs> but then like, apparently he was like really sexist or something. Like he really did not like women playing chess is I think. What I mean. Bob, Bobby so, Fischer was a, ended up being a pretty bad guy. He became a very, he, he himself was Jewish, but he became very anti-Semitic and he, uh-huh. he's definitely a problematic character. He, he yeah. lost his, lost his marbles. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think I feel like this um, book that was written was a response to him because there's a lot of like, um, inspiration behind his story that was put into this book um and with like at the time in the 50s 60s you know women housewives are known to be like alcoholics or something so there's like that level of alcoholism alcoholism in the in the show so i have um, to watch this now yeah it's really good okay why is this segment called glisten it oh it it all goes back to our playwriting workshop at iowa where Uh um after giving feedback on a play, we would wrap up the discussion with um, our professor, Derek Love, called them glistens, which were just little gems of um, like lines that we loved or moments. Love it. Fantastic. Um, so, <laughs> I just so, wanted to so know. These are glistens from the week. I love yeah. that. I love that. Positivity. Exactly. You can also think yeah. of them as sparkles. Sparkles. Okay. That was another term. <laughs> cool. So anyway, so my lesson is I um, I have been a reader for Young Clarets in Process, which is a program at Indiana Rep, and um, it's middle school and high school students submit plays um, to be developed 
at the theater, like alongside a mentor and then performed. And so I've been reading these submissions uh, from young playwrights and I'm just so dazzled by their imagination and storytelling. Um, and I, every time I read plays by young people, I, I it helps me think mm. bigger and um, more boldly. And so, yeah, that's my highlight from the week. Awesome. I love that. That's great. How about you, Kevin? I gotta. I'm gonna circle back to uh, to this album by this band Ulva. Uh, this Norwegian band is incredible. They don't have the following they deserve, partly because they're so their work is so heterodox. Like if you go back, they're on their 18th album mm-hmm. now. If you go to their early work, it's completely different. Like any other any other project or any other band would have disbanded, started a new band under a new name but they haven't done that. And so their last album was called the assassination of Julius Caesar. And it has this, <laughs> right. I mean, come on, how, you're a playwright. How can you not love this? Uh, and like, there's a song on that album called 1969, I think it's 1969. And the lyric is one of the driving um, theses. It's like driving my, my understanding of the world right now. And there's a lyric, they say, Nothing has changed since the late 60s. And I think that that is such a great summary of why we feel stuck now in this culture. It feels like we're sort of trapped in mm. this, this hippie mm. fever dream and we're constantly waking up into the cocaine 70s. And, and oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, we, we can't escape, right? We're constantly telling the same story over and over and over again. And I, I actually, one of my theories is that this decade is going to be the decade that we break out. Um, but I was... I was very, uh, I love music. I'm such an, I'm such a geek for music. Um, uh, and, uh, I think this band deserves way more attention, especially in the United States. Um, I was concerned that their follow-up to this album would be maybe that they might go back to some sort of, um, ambient metal and, and really, you know, sort of, sort of throw a spanner in the works, not, not follow through with the same style that they had found with this, this last album. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new album just has everything um, from the last album and the lyrics are just incredible. There's a song called machine guns and peacock feathers. It's like my entire, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Oh and, my gosh. And the cover is like Joan of Arc having her hair cut off. It's just, I, you know, it's very over the top theater stuff, but I, I fell into a hole where I listened to this album, you know, five times on repeat. So. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> Flowers of evil. Of course, named after the the book of poems from Baudelaire. Oh, so you know, yep, good wow. good uh, album for for theater people. And uh, do they live in Norway? I think that they do. I don't know. Um, okay. His English is perfect. It's 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 in it's in English. I'm pretty sure they're they still live in Norway. I'd have to look it up. Um, mm-hmm. They're one of these bands that if you hear them, you go, oh, "This band has to be huge," and they are to a point. But they they still only have like six thousand followers on Twitter. They had to they had a West Coast tour scheduled a couple of years ago and they mm-hmm. had to cancel it because they didn't have enough interest. It's just, it's just strange. Like they're, they're right on the edge of some tremendous crossover breakout. And I don't mm-hmm. know, but I don't, you know, I don't care how big they are, how, how, how big they're not. It's just like this new album is just awesome. It's well, just now awesome. that Beckett's Babies listeners know about them, yeah. this is going to be their moment. Do it. <laughs> Do it. Another great band you have to check out is Have a Nice Life. 
check out Have a Nice Life. <laughs> okay. But that's the, that's the name of the band, Have a Nice that's Life. The, yeah, Have a Nice Life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did an interview with the guy, the guy, the mastermind behind that on my podcast, GetThisPodcast.com. Dan Barrett, the guy's a genius, genius. He's got three musical projects: uh, Have a Nice Life, Giles Corey, and um, uh, Blackwing. And um, he's just one of these living inspirations where you go like, wow, we can we can make independent art. Like they very famously made their their breakout album called Death Consciousness uh, in a bedroom, you know. So I take inspiration from from people who are now you know working despite everything that America throws our way. Right? Um, we got to just push through and make our art. So mm -hmm. yeah, cool. I'm gonna start adding glistens to to my um, <laughs> my weekly routine. <laughs> Just make sure you say glistens, trademark, Beckett's babies. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned your podcast. Where else can our listeners find you? Um, if they still want to find me after mm -hmm. having heard me talk. Um, <laughs> no, I'm at kevinkautzman.com. It's K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N, K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N, Kevin Kautzman. I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, my account there has been called Heterodox, um, which I'm quite proud of. Uh, I sort of listen to people from all sides there, and I kind of enjoy that. So I'm just at Kevin Kautzman. And then we have GetThisPodcast.com. That's a show about things people love. I interview different people uh, for about an hour uh, on, the, on some subject that they bring to me. So I've done that for a while, uh, for a couple of years. I really enjoy that. And then, of course, Cut Edge Collective uh, is uh, CutEdgeCollective.com. And you can find me there. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, we'll be we'll be sure to add those links to the show notes. So Oh, and I if I may, yeah. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. Um moderationplay.com. That is the mm. uh, the three-part uh, adaptation of moderation into a podcast. You can listen to it in about 90 minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. and I hope you enjoy that. Cool. Is that on Spotify? Or do you have it's on the website, but is it also on I mean, on your website mm -hmm. but also on other yes. platforms? Okay. Yep, it's on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. So you can okay. find it. But if you go to the website, if you don't have any of those, you can go to yeah. the website and listen to it right there. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so, so much, much for having me. That was a lot of fun. Sarah, Sam, uh, thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater, or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Bye.